0: Stephen Laws is the co-founder and creative director at Cantina Creative. They recently completed VFX work on the Marvel film, Loki. In fact, Loki was their 17th Marvel project. Cantina Creative is a global company headquartered in Los Angeles. This incredibly prolific design and visual effects studio launched in 2010 by Stephen and his now longtime partner, Sean Cushing. So if I go down the list with you, there's Loki, of course. There's the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. There's WandaVision, Black Widow, Avengers Endgame, Captain Marvel, Avengers Infinity War, Black Panther, Spider-Man Homecoming, Captain America Civil War, Avengers Age of Ultron, Guardians of the Galaxy, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, Captain America The Winter Soldier, Iron Man 3, and the Avengers. And that's just the Marvel films. I don't know about you, but I'm a huge MCU fan and I wanted to talk to Steven about their work on Loki since it's the most recent. But you know, even more than that, I wanted to find out what makes him tick and how he got to where he is and what advice he has for our audience about how to be more successful in this crazy film and television business. Oh, and please like and subscribe if you wish. I talk to amazing people all the time, and I'm happy to share those relationships
1: with you. It's time for OWC Radio. Tech Talk with Creatives. Conversations with host Serena Catania.
0: This is Serena Catania with OWC Radio. I am very happy to have Stephen Laws here with me today. And I gave you a little bit more information about him before we started, but just to remind you, he is the co-founder of Cantina Studios and has worked on umpteen zillion major movies um, over the years. I think the company was founded in in 2010, right, Stephen? Yes.
1: Yep. 2010.
0: So a lot has changed since 2010. Can you set the stage for us and talk to us about your humble beginnings?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's funny because 2010 feels both quite some time ago and in yesterday, Um, and we've covered a lot of ground in the last 10 years in the types of projects we've done, but uh, it has flown by. And we've been lucky, um, actually very lucky, that we've been busy almost the entire time. I think we've had one summer uh, when it was relatively quiet, Um, and during that time we produced a, a small little short film in
0: your Uh, spare time
1: uh, yeah and i'll cope (laughs) your spare time and um uh but yeah we've been incredibly busy and lucky to be busy that entire time so uh uh, as long as we keep going that direction we're going to be happy i think but uh yes so tell me
0: what the very first project was when when you started this company what was your very first project
1: well, interestingly enough, I had been at uh, a company called PLF, Pixel Liberation Front in Venice, California, um, Sean Cushing, and we'd been in touch with each other for years. I was on a movie some time ago, back in 2002, called Sky Captain the World Tomorrow, and I was on the production end, and Sean was one of the vendors. I think we had like 12 or 13 on that show and we kept in touch over the years, and kept running into each other. Actually, we ran into each other on Superman Returns, and um, and Speed Racer, and a couple of other projects. And uh, he had called me up because uh, the creative director at PLF was leaving at the time, Kent Seki, and he was, I think, going off to uh, PDI DreamWorks at the time. So he said, "Hey, Steve, do you, you want to come down and chat and see if you want to come on board?" So. Um, there was an opening, and it, it, you know, I was at that time doing quite a bit of freelance compositing work with Rob Legato, um, the great Rob Legato, who I, yeah. um, I had worked with on a number of shows. He lives really close uh, to me, actually; he's only a few miles away, so it was easy to go over and show him, uh, show him work, and, and chat with him. So that was that was a great period of time. Yeah, but this seemed really uh, an interesting opportunity. And I think at that point, you know, PLF were obviously known for their great previs. I mean, they practically invented the medium. Um, uh, Colin Green had started that back in, I think, the late 90s. And, uh, um, but Sean had uh, interestingly, beyond the previs work that they did, they also wanted to head into some finish work. And, you know, that was my speciality. And so he was like, do you want to come on board and, and help? You know, pursue more of that type of work, so that was to me a great opportunity. And literally, like a day or so after I started, he said to me, he pulled me aside, he was like, So I'm thinking of leaving
0: and starting a <laughs> company.
1: I'm like, What? I've just got here, <laughs> like, give me a second. Um, and so we chatted to some, yeah you know, I was like, Well, what do you have in mind? And um, and I think he, at that point, it became blatantly obvious that he wanted to pursue more finished work than previous. And so, um, you know, we started kind of messing around with the idea of what that would look like. Um, and then, you know, a year into that, and it, this was all kind of over a period of time, you know, and um, we were working, or we bid on some work with um, the Bandita Brothers, who were producing Act of Valor. And I knew Jacob Rosenberg from Rob Legato because Jacob had come in to help Rob with some Adobe stuff, and because um, he was an expert in Premiere and and the Adobe line. Anyway, so Jacob had mentioned that you know they have a little a small amount of work on Activa that they needed to have some help with, so we bid on that, and then we're chatting to them. And what was interesting about Bindito at the time was that they were pursuing very much the type of thing that we were interested in pursuing uh, and not necessarily just VFX or producing VFX. We were very much interested in producing our own content, our own material, which they were actively doing. Um, and so after chatting to Jacob, you know, and they didn't really have any kind of VFX and we were bidding on, on you know, on some of that work to help them out. Um, they, we, we broached them with the idea of like, well, would you like you know, we want to break away, create our own company, but would it be helpful if we were also your VFX department as such? And they thought that was a great idea. Um, So it was literally, I think we did some work with them on Activella, and then within two months we had left and started Cantina, and we were hanging out at Bandito in their old place. They had a big big, uh, warehouse where they had some, Everyone was in tents in these, you know, army surplus tents, which was a very unique look, definitely not practical from an air conditioning standpoint, but had a very kind of specific style. Uh, They, you know, we eventually all moved out to a different building. And that building, incidentally, is now where the Mill are. Uh, The Mill LA are in that building now. Uh, But yeah, it was, uh, as soon as we started talking to them, it was a very fast kind of turnaround and we... Um, created Cantina within, you know, like a few weeks or such, you know, a couple of months and uh, got up and running. And uh, initially we were, I think, finishing off some of the work for Active Valor. And then we started on uh, working with them on um, the Hot Wheels kind of campaign. They did a whole bunch of Hot Wheels commercials that we we helped uh, uh, pursue a lot of the uh, visual effects for. And then you know, coinciding with that, uh, Sean had worked on Iron Man One. Um, they'd done pretty much all the previous for that show, and Kent was also pretty instrumental on, on the look or part of the look of the um, the, the the Huds, the head-up display for Iron Man, and um, he had worked with the orphanage, you know, uh, on on that on those concepts, and um, had always you know, kept in touch with Marvel since they were kind of pretty new at that point. Um, and um, so we, we ended up bidding, you know, work on Iron Man 2 and then eventually Avengers. And then it just snowballed and ended up working. I think this is something like our 17th project. 17. That's what together. I read. So
0: 17 Marvel films. That's pretty amazing. You know, I think the moral of the story here from what you're telling me is that you worked and developed relationships. You did really good work. But you weren't afraid to ask for what you wanted when the time was right. And I think that's good advice for all the people who are going to be watching this and saying, how can I do what he does? How can I get into Mm -hmm. that part of the business? So what, what would you specifically tell somebody who maybe is coming out of wherever they're taking their education and uh, film school or college or high school and they're very creative and they want to start to learn how to do what you do what would you tell them
1: well i think you know learn your craft it takes some time to do that it's just experience it it uh, and don't be afraid from going to a diff- a bunch of different places too because uh wherever you go you're going to learn something new and you'll gain contacts too this industry is not like terribly huge I mean it's big big ish, but it's not that big. And um you, you want to try and make as many of those contacts as, as possible and uh don't piss off anyone as you go along if you can help it. <laughs> I would <I laughs> yeah, don't
0: because well, there's, you know, there's some you know there's some really You'll really, never work in this town. I again. know, right? <laughs> yeah,
1: there's some fantastic people to work with in this industry um, but there's also a handful of people that are just like really difficult to work with and uh, so you want to try and you know pursue those those um, those contacts as much as you can and uh, and just do really really good work i mean just it all ends up for for us specifically it ends up being in the details we were very detail oriented and uh, well uh, i think a lot of clients now will come back to us because uh they do like uh they you know they find that we're really good problem solvers when it comes to story and creatively solving those problems the story uh so you know whether it's an editorial issue or how we're telling a story through graphics whether it's monitor graphics heads up displays traditional vfx we have been particularly good at that we focus very very firmly on story and you know obviously marvel uh, in particular are are big on uh, carrying over the story from film to film to film and um so you know we've been very focused on that
0: yeah it's like there's an engine pulling all the cars and it all it all goes together the the thread is wonderful and i think the fans love that too i'm a bit of oh, a fan yes. myself you know yes. uh who who let's talk about the who And the team on your side and the team on the Marvel side and how you interact, like, for example, during the previs phase or even even in the very, very early planning. Who do you interact with most at Marvel and how do you assemble your team on your side based on that?
1: Yeah, so um, generally we'll get a call from either a VFX producer or a VFX supervisor, depending on who that might be. Um, yeah, and they'll broach us with, uh, hopefully earlier on in the process, you know, depends on, on the project. We've been on projects that are really late in the game. Uh, but most of the Marvel ones, thankfully we've come in pretty early. Um, and, and usually that's about, about five to six months prior to the release of whatever, whether it's a movie or a TV show. Um, there have been a few projects we've come on even earlier than that. Um, Avengers One, we did some on-set playback, which we don't generally do a lot of, but periodically we'll we'll design. We're not specialists in that department um, by any stretch, um, and certainly from not the technical standpoint. Um, but we'll come on to design um, some concepts or do some animation. Uh, we did that on on, the, on Mockingjay too, but. Um, you know, it's, it's usually about five to six months prior to, to the release, and we'll, we'll chat with the VFX suit predominantly, um, and maybe the editor, depending on who is on the team from the Marvel side, you know. Um, specifically to, uh, like, Loki, that is the most recent one, I guess, uh, that was Dan DeLue. and we'd worked with Dan before on Infinity War, Endgame, and Civil War. He was the the main VFX suit for those shows, and we'd built up a pretty good relationship with Dan um, uh, over the years. And so, and he's a big Marvel nut himself. You know, he really gets into the story and the details, and all the kind of comic book hooks that hook into the MCU. And he's very kind of very specific about it, which is great. Um, so he he is well versed in in the Marvel lore and and specifically the MCU. So Dan will come in and we start chatting uh, or whoever it is, but specifically Dan on on the Loki TV show, and um, he'll kind of give us a brief of of what it is they're looking for us to do, give us some idea of kind of the scope of the project, and uh, at that point we'll try and figure out like well who would be most appropriate for that kind of design or that kind of storytelling and um, and then build a team uh, team around that and we're not a big house uh, you know we we're predominantly around 20 to 20 20 to 30 people at any one point in time depending on the size of the shows uh, but uh, you know, those those types of shows say Loki was a little bit bigger because we were doing a little bit more work. Um, so we ended up having about, uh, I think, 13, 14 people as a, as a crew, you know, artistic crew on, on those shows. But some of them can be um, a good a bit smaller. You know, it could be about just about five or five or six people.
0: Wow. Uh, so on Loki, you did 172 shots over mm-hmm. 33 yep. sequences.
1: Yeah. Over, That's a over lot. those episodes.
0: That's yes, it,
1: it's, you know, we we try not to get into the counting scenario and, and we're trying to deliberately keep ourselves at a good size there where we can um, put teams together and creative, creatively problem solve. Uh, Sean and I talked really early days when we were starting Cantina about like well, what sites we want to grow to if we're lucky enough to do that. And we always wanted to keep it moderately small um, so we don't run into the problem of, of getting uh just kind of doing in, getting into the shot count scenario where you have to take on 500 shots 1000 shots just to make ends meet or just to keep um, everyone busy you know so we we predominantly kind of focus on shows that are around the 150 200 probably be max amount of shots that we would ever do in a in a show um, so that we can we can deal with it and we can deal with it in a way that retains the quality anything start being beyond that we're going to be stretching ourselves on the quality scenario and we're so focused on you know making sure we we get we we return a quality product that you know it would just diminish after that so we really kind of want to focus on on the the type quality that we produce
0: so Uh, i know on these big films um they often have more than one special effects house working on On the shots and the sequences, and do you want or do you get the opportunity to see what the other houses are doing? So that I always wonder how things match at the end, you know? Uh, And sometimes I've watched movies that are big special effects movies, and you can honestly tell (laughs) that there's a different house working on certain sequences because there's there's sort of a look. Yeah. and, and that must be, is that a hard for you or how do you work around that? I
1: th- well, I think it's harder for the main VFX soup on right. the production end. That's right. the, predominantly their job these days, you know, to really yeah. kind of concentrate on the continuity and, and, and the way we think matches. It's incredibly tough. You imagine, uh, uh, I think, you know, especially in, in shows like Endgame or, or projects like Endgame, um, having One House uh, animate Thanos. A certain way, and then having another house animate the same Thanos with the same type of emotion. I mean, that's going to be crazy hard. Yeah. I think yeah. you know, for us, it's a little bit simpler because we are focusing primarily on the design. And you know, there's going to be shared shots between whether it's us and another vendor, um, and and we always attack that in one of two scenarios. It's it's either we finish a shot with the elements in the plate as if it's a new plate. And we just hand over a new plate to production that they hand to the other vendor. And uh, that's always an in-progress scenario. So as we update our versions, that gets sent to the the other vendor. The other way of doing it is just sending our elements straight to the vendor and they comp it in. Um, We're a big fan of comping our own work. We like to see our work uh, through execution. And I I think, you know, especially for things like monitor graphics and and, uh, heads up displays and uh, holograms, that kind of thing, because we have a kind of certain, we've been doing it for long enough now where we have a certain kind of like look to it that we feel like we've gained from experience. And um, so we tend to like doing those ourselves and then comping them in and just handing them off to another vendor. Um, So that's predominantly how. That works for us, and that also keeps the continuity standard as well, yeah. so that you don't get any bumps in it. You know.
0: So at that first meeting, on we'll just pick Loki because that's the most recent, and I'm sure you've got another one coming up that you probably can't even talk about. Oh, yet.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> NDA'd you, up the wazoo. <laughs>
0: yeah, there you go. And and so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna embarrass you and even ask, but in that first meeting on Loki. What physically was around you on the table? You had the scripts, you had some art, you were talking about the look. Who was in the room and on both sides and and how did all of that sort of be born?
1: Well, usually we do have people in the room, but since Loki was started and ended completely virtually, um, we didn't have anyone in the room. It was just over a Zoom call. So that started um, last November with a phone call from... Uh, uh, Dan and Alison Paul, who is the uh the VFX producer, and uh, we were just chatting about kind of what they had in mind and, and the scope of work. But usually what they do is send over uh, some rough edits, whether that's a previous version, a post-vis version, some sort of version of or what they have in mind and the, and the scope of work, as well as any kind of concept art, um, whether that comes from VFX or art department. It gives us some indication of what they're doing, where they're wanting to go with it. Um, And so those initial conversations usually start with the most pressing item, the thing that they haven't either figured out yet or something that is on their mind that they need to get solved. And that certainly for Loki was the, um, the sacred timeline uh, because that, you know, pops up in so many different episodes and it's something that hadn't, um, had been touched on, but hadn't necessarily been solved to the light, you know, to, to the director's um, um, what the really the director wanted or the studio wanted. So uh, that was our pressing issue. So that was the first thing we kind of got busy doing is is figuring out what uh, the look and the design of the the sacred timeline was, uh, because it it pops up in, as I say in a number of places. Uh, it pops up on those little temp pads. Um, that uh, that uh, that appear all the time by the TVA, and it also appeared in the command center for the TVA uh, on the bigger monitors. Uh, so, and it's used constantly as a way for the audience to understand uh, what is uh, a variant, um, how how those occur, and how do you visually tell that story. So, it was it was a big kind of component that they had to figure out uh, pretty early on. Um, and then, like I think most Marvel projects, as they work through the editorial process, uh, other um, issues come up from, from that kind of storytelling uh, component. And uh, they'll, they'll kind of throw that in our direction too. Like, hey, what do you, have you guys got latitude to do this? What do you think about this? And what was interesting also from that very first conversation was that Dan would also tease some of those things that might come up so specifically the he who remains sequence in episode six which was a lot of the little statue vignettes of of he who remains and kang on the table uh that we ended up um uh, animating designing animating and executing so uh he he mentioned that almost right from day one as i said had no really idea of like how that was going to progress because it was so early at that point in time in that process uh but uh It gives us a good idea of, like, um, certainly how many people we might need to crew up on Mm -hmm. and the the size of the team and who should be on the team.
0: I'm really um, curious about working on something like this that's, that's, I mean, I've been in those rooms where people are working on special effects, and everyone's in these huge rooms all working together on various aspects. I can't imagine what it's like working remote um how did that even work what equipment did you have what software you didn't use cinema 4d right on this on loki yeah
1: we did we did oh you did okay yeah we used it quite a bit actually i mean okay i I don't know um, where i
0: heard that you hadn't i mean i i was actually shocked when i read that so that's probably misreporting somewhere but but talk to me about the equipment and where you were and what software you were using and how you shared your vision with your team
1: yeah we um I mean, it all starts like we're talking right now, just virtually on a Zoom call. And we have since uh, gradually opened up the office for like a couple of days a week based on the Mm -hmm. teams, you know, so Mm we are all got masks and separated. But Mm -hmm. there are instances where you need to uh, creatively problem solve. And that is really tricky to do over a Zoom call, as it turns out. I think we've all adapted quite well, uh, especially well to this kind of uh, the way we work now. And so whether it's, it's having a conversation on Zoom or on Teams and sharing a screen and having a group of people sharing a screen on Teams and and, and showing the work and discussing it, um, we've got gradually gotten better and better at that. But, you know, there are instances where you can't beat just being in person and creatively problem-solving. It's, it's, it's really tough. But that one was started... As I say back in November, the conversation with Dan and Andrew Hollick was the um, the senior design on that. He supervised all the design, and um, and Tony Lupoy was our compositing supervisor on that show, VFX supervisor on that show. So together, they had also been a team on Bumblebee, which we had done a few years earlier, and it's it, not like massively dissimilar in the the nature of the look of those films. Um, You know, Bumblebee was set in the eighties. This one's set in an indeterminate amount of time, uh, essentially. But it leans on production design that is heavily influenced from the sixties and the seventies, with a little bit of that kind of video game parlance uh, from the eighties. So, you know, it's it's a bit of everything. And Andrew and Tony are super adept at that. So, um, you know, we do initial meetings on on Zoom, like we as I say, like we're doing now, and we'd share screens, and uh, we'd often draw over images, and and uh, that's that's the way we've kind of gone about it. Um, predominantly, you know, we've been just logging into machines at our office. Uh, mm-hmm. As soon as COVID hit, um, Douglas Wren, who's our uh, IT director, figured out how to get everyone online pronto, and I think within a week, we were all kind of working up Working at home, which was a miracle in itself, to be honest. Um, and then, you know, so so we've been just dialing into our um, logging into our office, uh, our machines at the office, and you know, predominantly because of the type of work we do and the niche we have, we use the Adobe Suite a lot, obviously, because mm-hmm. uh, our design. Uh, we will we'll use Illustrator, After Effects, Photoshop. You know, the the general uh, Adobe Suite. We still composite a lot in After Effects. I think we're probably one of the only places that do any kind of heavy compositing in After Effects. It used to be more. We've actually struggled over the last 15 years finding more and more compositors that are After Effects compositors. It's, it ends up being a real struggle. So we kind of split shows these days between Nuke and uh, After Effects, depending on a) who we can find, their talents, uh, and what type of show it is, you mm-hmm. know. So uh, you know, usually, as I say, it's between Nuke and After Effects. And uh, for, for Loki specifically, uh, the design work was predominantly done in in After Effects and Illustrator. Uh, but some of that's the the sequences at the end in in Episode Six, the look development, we started initially in C four D, but quickly segued into using Houdini and rendering rendering in Redshift because. Uh, the type of work that was—it was specific to something is that is Houdini that uh, Houdini is incredibly, you know, fast and adept at. So,
0: and what is that? Can you explain that a little bit? What is what specifically is Houdini best at? Can you give us an well, example? Well,
1: traditionally, everyone knows Houdini for simulations, right? right? So, fire, water, smoke, all that kind right. of good stuff. Uh, but because we were doing these transitions between these little statue vignettes, vignettes of he who remains on the table, those, those transitions are kind of based on the material that they're built out of. So they're kind of particle simulations. So Houdini seemed to be the way to go uh, early on in that process. We had actually had a discussion a lot earlier on in that process of uh, uh, those things being a little bit more on the complex side. And the transitions being more complex and the material that they're made out of being multiple types of material. It would start with light and then the light would become solid and change to another material. And this was all based on a conversation we had had with Dan earlier on in the process. And as he was describing it, because there were no visuals at that point in time, mm-hmm. as he was describing it, it reminded me of some of the early work we had done on Captain Marvel, some of the conceptual work we've done on that, a lot of which didn't make it into the movie because we came on that project super duper early and editorial changed as it does over time and some of those sequences got cut or they were in the background, all that kind of stuff. And so it reminded me of this. I was like, oh, wow, a lot of that stuff wasn't used, but what he's talking about could be really interesting in in this aspect. So we sent over those, uh, some of those were just stills, some of them were like, Animation tests, and we sent all those over to Danny, showed those to the director, and they seemed pretty keen on the idea. And then that evolved, you know, uh, the whole thing's always an evolution process of, of whether it's a design thing or, or uh, a visual effect uh, of what it ends up looking like. Um, and so that was a good starting gauge for us, but the, those were specifically the, the types of tools we use. We, we generally try not to we're relatively tool agnostic. We try to approach each project with the idea of like, well, this is what we need to try and solve. What is the correct tool for using that? So we try and keep relatively open-minded about what to use.
0: Well, that's mana from heaven for the director, I can tell you, and that's why you yeah. keep working, I'm sure. Just thinking about the workflow, how are you moving these files from point A to point B to get them to your the people that have to approve them who has to approve them first of all, and then mm-hmm. how do you move the material? Are you are you using Frame IO for any of this? Are you using Hightail or Dropbox or mm-hmm. what? You, what are you using? I'm just curious.
1: Well, over, certainly over the last, uh, well, definitely the last ten years, but a little bit longer than that actually. Um, security protocols are a very specific thing to make sure all the studios, yeah, um, their IP is protected. Right. Uh, you don't want anything ever going out. You know, I, I remember vividly on Avatar, uh, that was a pretty insane show, and we worked on that for a good chunk of time. Uh, but period, of, you know, over the last, say, over the last ten to fifteen years, they've become much more specific about security protocols, making mm-hmm. sure that their IP, their content, all those files, are in one place, and they don't go straying all over the place. That's the one thing you don't want to do. So. Uh, all our, um, all the material that we work on and produce is on our servers at the office, mm-hmm. um, secure there, behind uh, an air gap. And so you can't just wander in and get to it. <laughs> that's good.
0: There's a lot you of know, uh,
1: both physical security and digital security protocols that we, that mm-hmm. we abide by. And so from a working standpoint, uh, all our artists are VPN into their machines at the office. Those machines are connected to the servers with the specific content they're working on. Um, So we're only looking at it that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, We don't kind of pass files around uh, too much when we review material. It's reviewing remotely. It's reviewing on those machines so we can see what it looks like. Mm -hmm. Um, And the way it's set up, actually, even just the the way that uh, we work remotely works really well. Uh, Lately, we've kind of uh, starting to use um, a product called Parsec to mm-hmm. log on to machines, which predominantly I think started off as a game um, tool, but uh, is is great for virtual uh, working. Um, and we, uh, and there's another tool we call we use Jump for a Mac to Mac because Parsec are just getting into the mac arena uh most of our machines are pcs but we have a few macs at at the office and it's good to see playback at speed so you know both of those tools work particularly good for that um and then getting material back and forth to clients is usually set up by the production by the client. so Mm -hmm. that's usually some sort of uh account or aspira account Mm -hmm. uh, and that's usually set up by them send they send us credentials uh and we'll upload and download material using that um, that protocol. It's it's relatively straightforward. You know, you just mm-hmm. got to make sure you have a pretty beefy internet connection. And
0: yeah, the the pipeline's always right. the biggest problem, isn't it?
1: Yep. Yep.
0: <laughs> I, I, yeah, yeah. I I know. I was I was uh, directing a show for National Geographic, and we were trying to move material from all over the world into the studio in D.C. So that we mm-hmm. could all we could start editing. And they were using back then. This was probably, I don't know, maybe ten years ago. FTP protocols.
1: Yes. Yeah. And
0: and we would get knocked off by the IT department. Had put security protocols on the (laughs) FTP transfers. And I'm I'm there at at the midnight hour trying to convince IT to please let us (laughs) receive these files. It's it's crazy. It's just crazy. So I want to ask you when you were when you were a little boy, what did you like to do the most? Like if when you, when when Stephen at five years old, what what would he be doing? I'm very curious.
1: <laughs> well, I didn't really get into art too much until kind of middle school ish area. My brother was doing he was doing some. Music classes outside of school, and my mom turned to me. Was like, "Well, is there anything you're interested in doing?" I was like, "Well, I kind of like drawing." So um, we uh, they hired, you know, a, an art teacher that ended up being my art teacher in high school, which was super convenient. Um, and and my mom's always been, you know, super creative in that department. My dad worked in TV his entire life, mm-hmm. and we were all pretty mesmerized by that. You know, we'd go up to he was working at a company called Central TV. Uh, when we were growing up, and they produced a couple of TV shows locally. Uh, one Where called Tiz- this? This was in Birmingham in okay, England. And um, they produced a, and they shot and produced uh, a show, Saturday morning kids' show called Tiz Was, that was big, you know, huge in the 80s. And we all used to watch that. And he would take us up, and we'd be able to kind of watch a show being produced. So it was all sorts of magical for myself and my brother to watch that. And then later on... Uh, he, as I got more interested and more into it, um, he took me up to a visit to a place called Cosgrove Hall uh, Studios up in Manchester, and they produced uh, a bunch of different animated shows. One was Wind in the Willows, and that was stop motion. Mm. It was just gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Um, and they produced what was the That's other one? Beautiful. Ones, uh, um, Danger Mouse mm-hmm. and a couple other that more uh, more kind of traditional two D, which was you know hand drawn animation on cell uh, back then on and then shot and film. Um, But that was that really captured my uh, imagination. I think I did a project in high school or something on it. And uh, and then after that, I was pretty captivated by getting into animation. And so my whole my whole goal was um, to to be a Disney animator at that point from pretty early on, pretty early age. So I ended up going to Middlesex University and doing a three year degree in graphic design, but focusing on animation um and uh, um, from there I went to calarts in uh, uh, out here in LA uh, mm. to do experimental animation uh, for uh, for my grad degree and um, you know so I was I was always very focused and it's gradually changed over the over the years you know I've been you know I think initially I was super focused on being a disney animator but then when I got to calarts I was super into experimental and independent filmmaking and and getting into more more of that, um, uh, but that doesn't doesn't always pay the bills as it turns <laughs> out. You know. <laughs> Tell me <us> about it. <laughs> yeah, so uh, so I think when I got out of school, I, I got lucky because I, I just talked my way through into jobs most of the time. And being at Cal Arts, you know, that gives you a, a lot of connections with people in the industry too, which was mm-hmm. great. Um, I ended up taking a job straight out of school and being a background designer on, a uh, at Klaski Chupo, uh, on a, on a show called Our Real Monsters, which was a ton of fun. Um, persuaded a friend of mine, my schoolmate Brad to come on board and also be a, a background designer. And then, you know, from there, it's just kind of, I've gone to where initially where the work was, but also where the connections were. I end up, mm-hmm. you know, directing commercials at Duck Soup Productions, um, uh, back in the day and then doing title design at the picture mill and, and then gradually getting into VFX. But I was never really interested in VFX as VFX. You know, I was much more interested in the storytelling aspect of VFX. And I think you know, that, that goes back to when I was uh, directing animated commercials at Tuck mm-hmm. Soup or doing title sequences. You know, Title sequences are, uh, depending on the length, but usually about two-and-a-half-minute uh, mini-story and, and to themselves you know and I was always very much more interested in that storytelling aspect of it and so when sky captain came around um because we were on production of well, the production end of that uh show uh, it was fascinating to me because a it started off as a black and white movie And I was like, wait, someone's allowing you to produce a black and white movie? That just seems insane. There's (laughs) no way. And ultimately, it was insane because it ended up in color. So, um, But originally, it was in black and white in in six or uh, five chapters, I think. Uh, That was the way it was originally set up and designed and written. But I was really intrigued by that and got lucky to be on that show, again, through a friend that Uh, of my wife. who my wife also works in the, in the industry. We met at school. She now works at Disney animation studios down in Burbank. So,
0: um,
1: you know, it's, uh, and my kids are kind of, is rubbing off on my kids a little bit too. So is it really? Well, it's in your (laughs)
0: DNA. It's in your DNA, you know, um, boy, two of you in this business, that's, that's gotta be time consuming and, um, challenging for the family. Um, you're working with studios you don't often have a lot of time off although with remote you know with remote collaboration how are you liking working from home well i have to say
1: and we were talking about this um some time ago you know as bad as COVID is and it's it's absolutely awful um it has given us two things that i thought were actually um let's say a benefit you know because we get to work a little bit more from home so um, I'm around, you know, my wife and kids a lot more, which is fantastic. Um, so spending, especially uh, my eldest daughter, who's now just off to college next week, um, oh off to university. So yeah, <laughs> which is nest. just, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not looking forward to driving her up next week, I, I gotta say, but, oh. you know, having her in a senior year and being able to spend a lot of time with her before she takes off to university is, is, is fantastic. Um, so just generally having a lot more time with the family is great. Um, and, and the other thing is being able to work with artists that we wouldn't normally be able to work with because of security protocols. You know, usually we have everyone in the office in L.A. Uh, but now we've been able to work with people or artists in Vancouver or in Amsterdam or London. You know, it's, it's given us a little bit more latitude to work with other talent from around the world, which is a real bonus I we've loved that you know it's
0: how do you great. feel about um covid's effect on the bottom line for a lot of the major studios i mean if i were still working at a studio i might be a little bit nervous right now because of the slowing down of the theatrical aspects do you think that right. streaming is i mean how do you feel about the future of these major theatrical movies i have an opinion but i (laughs) i have opinion about everything you'll learn that about me but but i'm really i'm really curious about how you feel and what you guys talk about you know because it's been a tough year tough Mm -hmm. couple of years
1: yeah i think you know we were really concerned financially at first because we were like um you know if production uh is drying up because they can't shoot Then there's going to be limited post. What are we going to do? And we really kind of dreaded that last fall was going to be super duper quiet. Uh, Weirdly enough, it was the actual opposite. We haven't been busier than we've ever been. I mean, it's just been bonkers, crazy busy uh, over the last year. You know, so from an financial aspect. As I say, we were a little concerned, but it doesn't seem like that's the issue, Um, There seems to be enough production going on uh, right now. I think from a theatrical release, I'm I'm still such a, I love to go to the theater. Mm, I haven't been in the little while. I still love to go to the theater to see a a film. Um, And, you know, much like, you know, Chris Nolan or or Tarantino are like their theater buffs. They will only release their material on theaters. And I applaud them for that because, you know, there's, there's there are certain types of films that really should only be seen in a theater on a big screen. Um, I think the last uh, I didn't get to see Tenet. In the, in the theater, but I did get to see Dunkirk at the Cinerama oh, Dome. I can, me
0: too, and you know what? I, I literally sat down with my friend I was with and I said, there is no other way I'd want to see this movie. Right. And there's no way you can experience what that team put together on a, on a you know, like a, a 50, 50 foot screen even. You know? Oh, absolutely. Your, or, yeah. um, I don't know. Yeah, a 50 inch screen i should say yeah. <laughs> you know sorry 50 foot screen i have a big living room i have a 50 foot screen no actually i have a uh, but i have a i have a 100 inch uh, projector uh, mm-hmm. screen but the the light is not yes. as bright as it is in the theater and even though i have really good sound there's just nothing like dolby surround oh, with a huge theater on the other hand the Amazons and the Netflixes and all of those companies that are hiring uh, creative people to work on streaming product. Well,
1: that's the thing. I think, you know, on the flip side, you look at all the shows that either Netflix or Amazon or Hulu or or, or Marvel, Disney Plus, you know, all they're producing. And there's there's obviously a huge amount of content out there. Um, And it's really, what's interesting also is it's really Great quality content too. You look mm-hmm. at the quality of um, now. Maybe I'm a big fan of the HBO shows, but you know the quality of even shows that don't have VFX like Succession. Mm-hmm. Um, shows that do have VFX like Westworld. I mean, the quality of those productions are just like insanely good. And yeah. and they you could see those in a theater, and and they'd be they totally hold up, totally fine. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think on the flip side, even just seeing material at home and certainly I've enjoyed watching all the even though we work on it I'm still a Marvel <laughs> fan and I'll watch it with my youngest you know she absolutely loves the MCU and loves getting into the you know certainly the time travel aspects of, of, of Marvel um, and uh, so that's given us uh, a venue to do that which I really love too.
0: What do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs>
1: <laughs> not, right?
0: What's next? What's well, on your bucket list? You've done so much.
1: I think, you know, we're we're, we're still uh, venturing forth with Cantina. Our big goal is with Cantina is producing um, still our own uh, products, our own shows, um, uh, our own productions. So that's still as a goal, I think, you know, beyond that. Um, I think on one thing, someone had asked me this. Some time ago, and I was like, "Well, if I wasn't doing this, I'd be a landscape designer slash beekeeper because I like being outdoors. <laughs> it's still got design in mind, and uh, yeah. Uh, and my mom was a beekeeper. Mum's a beekeeper right now. She's fully retired, obviously, but she's still an active beekeeper. Uh, my granddad was a beekeeper. You know, it's one of those things. I where we're like, well, that. that seems like a family thing." Um, and uh, so that's something I'd probably want to go into at some point because it's just, uh, uh, I, again, it's, it's nice to kind of mix it up. But, you know, it's funny enough, even just the, the, the COVID thing, working at home, <laughs> beyond spending time with family and uh, all the other things I, I mentioned, like I've been able to get outside a lot more than I used to, which I think is, that's got to be healthier, right?
0: Yeah, it it is. (laughs) Uh, Well, Stephen, is there anything, there's so much we could talk about, and I could go on for hours, but I want to respect your time, because you are starting some new projects, which are under NDA, and we can't talk about. (laughs) But congratulations on your latest work with Loki, that was absolutely unbelievable, I really urge everyone to see it, if you haven't seen them, and where do you you want people to go to learn more about what you do over there at Cantina?
1: Yeah, you could go to our website, cantinacreative.com. That has a lot of material on there, that and and behind the scenes material, um, some of the work we do. Uh, Plus, we are just about to redo that (laughs) website. So, uh, you know, every few years you like to give it a a refresh, obviously. So, uh, I think in the next month that'll be uh, refreshed, uh, which would be great and also some new work up there. It's always hard to keep on top of a producing uh, uh, background reels uh, for the work that we do, as well as getting imagery, uh, relevant imagery up on the website. Uh, But we're actively doing that right now and trying to update everything. Um, It's one of the side effects of being, uh, luckily being as busy as we are. We haven't had as much time to do all of that. (laughs) Work, which is... <laughs> yeah,
0: how do you have time to build websites when you're working right. on all this huge, it's, it's forget it, you can't keep up with it. Well, um, this has been, this has been wonderful. I'm really proud of everything you've done. And I think that you're setting an amazing example for people in the creative industry with your, just your approach to your work and how much you care about it and your love of story. Because Ultimately, it's always about the story. Even if it's one image or one plate, it's always about the story. Well, he's Stephen Laws, the co-owner and creative director of Cantina Creative. I'm Serena Catania with OWC Radio, and I'm signing off. But before I do, remember what I tell you guys every single time. Get up off your chairs and go do something wonderful today, even if it's in your own house. (laughs) But go do something wonderful. Thank you so much for visiting with us, Stephen. It's it's been great.
1: Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been fun.